This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we've got uh, plenty of things to dish out for you this morning. Uh, The first up is a chat with Kay Wernagel, who has just come back from Palestine. G'day, Kay. How are you? Good, thanks, Annie. How are you? I'm good. And uh, when we were having a chat, you were saying that uh, nothing really prepared you for going to Palestine and the situation there. Do you want to give us a bit of an idea of your journey? Oh, yes. It was uh, totally different from what I I understood. I, I, I understand, and I think most people do, that... Israel meets the United Nations definition of apartheid, but you know when you get to see what's actually happening, it's so much more than that. For instance, um, physical subjugation or oppression is actually only about 10% of people's daily experience, even though it's actually very severe. But Palestinians have to actually endure things like the, the Israeli military bursting into their houses, often in the middle of the night, and they use silent explosives to break open their front doors. They have guns and push them in their faces and their children's faces. And this often happens many times a week. Another example is, you know, if they're travelling to work and, you know, they're going to an Israeli area to work, they have to go through checkpoints that often have a very narrow window for when they can enter or exit it. So, you know, if they don't make that time, they're either locked out or they, they can't get to work. Um, things like a one work permit that a, a family might have or a person might have is actually controlling 10 people in their family. So, And it is reviewed every three months. So if any member of their family has any sort of record or um, commits any sort of offence, that permit is taken away from family and then they can't work. So you... you uh, they, oh, sorry, go yes. on. There was another example of them when they they build a house, they want to build a house, they actually need a $30,000 US, $30,000 deposit for a building permit, and 99% of them are rejected and there's no refund. Oh, my goodness. They can't even build their own houses. That's incredible. So so actually when you were there, you found that it was... uh, uh, so oppressive that uh, it was just completely clear to you when you were there. Oh, totally, totally. They've 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 had their minds messed totally, and it's happened over many, many, many decades. And it's just done in every single way that you can possibly conceive. 
So how you, did you recognise? Sorry, go on. Oh, I was going to say, how did you get there? Uh, so I was with the uh, APAN, with the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network. They ran a study tour that I was part of, and mm. it was a ten-day tour throughout all the regions in Palestine. So we went to places like Nazareth, Nablus, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, uh, Ramallah, Hebron, uh, Haifa. And, you know, we saw things that... We saw military courts for children. We saw Jordan Valley farmers. Um, We saw the uh, refugee camps in Ramallah. We saw the segregation of societies in Hebron. We, We saw... Villages that had been raised totally in um, Jaffa, in Tel Aviv. It, it was quite confronting. So the uh, everyday life of people is on a war footing, effectively. Yes, that's right. They're, they're always in fear of what's going to happen next. You know, the, the Israelis walk around with machine guns everywhere and um, they ostensibly say that's for security, but um, it's intimidation. And actually, it's in Palestine itself. In Palestine itself, that's right, yeah. They have um, multiple areas. They divide them up into A, B and C. And, you know, parts are totally Israeli-controlled and parts are Palestinian-controlled and parts are a bit of each. And, you know, that sounds really reasonable on paper, but in, in actual fact, that's not the way it pans out at all. And what about services in general, as in electricity and... Uh uh, ablutions yes. and uh, water. Yes. Well, that's really interesting. As you drive along, you see these high-rise buildings, and a lot of them have black water t- tanks on the top on the roof, and they're Palestinian houses or buildings. And the reason that they have these water tanks is because the Israelis just cut off their water whenever they like and for as long as they like. So they have to have water tanks on there. And they do the same with electricity. They just cut it off whenever they like, for as long as they like. Is there any um, feeling that there's any other power that can uh, resolve the issues for the ordinary people in Palestine other than uh, to actually push back on the Israelis? Uh, No, I didn't get a, a sense of that. You know, we met with people like the Australian ambassador and a number of NGOs and um, legal groups that are, that are trying to help to resolve the situation, but there is no simple answer. I certainly spoke to a number of Palestinians, many Palestinians, and all they want is for things to go back to how they were 100 years ago when they coexisted peacefully together. The um, Israelis appear to have an ongoing plan to exterminate the Palestinians. Would that Is that the feeling that you get, you got? Definitely, and even speaking to Israelis, they say that they want to have a Jewish place for themselves. They don't want the Palestinians in their country. They believe it's their country. Oh, that's incredible, isn't it? And so all the the patter that we get in general is uh, actually completely different from what it's like in real life. Absolutely. Absolutely is. I I never realised how bad it could possibly be, but it's catastrophic. So they were, um, the Palestinians were pleased that you were there to be a witness? Yes, that's pretty much um, what they're they're asking for is, all they're asking for is for people to 
to see what's actually happening and to get the word out because nothing is happening locally um, in in their country and they've been fighting it for, for very many decades and very in very many different ways they've tried all sorts of things to to get to a point where they can sit down and discuss things rationally with the Israelis and it just doesn't seem to be working. It's interesting too because in this uh, world of creating narratives, the Israelis in the uh, international scene uh, have created this notion of uh, the fearful Palestinians and uh, the terrorist Palestinian. But in actual fact, this is a misnomer. That's what you're saying. It definitely is. Um, one of the most confronting things that I saw was a day when we went to a military court for children and um, the, the Palestinian court system is quite different to the Israeli one. And we saw these children that went to the courts. And, and when you think of a court, you think of a you know, fairly glamorous room with judges and so forth. Well, it's not like that at all in Ramallah. They uh, have uh, shipping containers as courtrooms and the military people are judges. And this is just for the Palestinians. The Israelis have their own separate court system. And, you know, we met a woman who um, was worried about her son who was appearing that day and she was in tears and he'd been throwing stones at a, an Israeli child who was also throwing stones. And and she'd already had three other sons who are in prison for similar offences. So there's no justice there and there's no um, right that a, that a Palestinian has in, in any respect compared to an Israeli person. So that child, uh, when you're talking about children, what ages are you talking about? We saw um, teenagers, so people under 18. Yeah, and so if, in the if, if they were found guilty, in inverted commas, they would go to prison? Yes, yes, yes. And most of them do. You know, the, the, the statistics are very high. So if you're, if you're um, a court or a perceived to be in court, then the chances are you'll go to prison. And did you get any impression that uh, going to prison had an end date? There are end dates. Um, so, you know, it can be months or years that you're in prison for, but you do come out. But the, the problem there is that um, your, your, your father's work permit is tied to your um, um, problem. And so, therefore, the, the father then can't work if, if you're caught doing something illegally and you have a sense of a record. So that means that then the parents can't live properly and, and can't afford to, to work at all, or they can't work at all. And um, and then the children can't work, and so the whole family's destitute. Affected by the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. They're destitute. Yeah, they're destitute. Do people are people eating? They are eating. Um, it's they're eating fairly basic food, and of course the Jordan Valley is the, the main food area um, in the country. So that's another area that um, Israel is trying to, to get control over. We went and visited a, a family in the Jordan Valley and they were telling us the story of over a period of two or three weeks, they had their house pulled down 32 times 
because the Israelis are trying to get people out of the Jordan Valley. And this was in the middle of winter when, you know, it was freezing cold and raining, uh, snowing. And so uh, no international interference with Israelis' uh, illegal actions, effectively? Not that um, I can understand. Uh, you know, the UN certainly supports what the, the, the Palestinians' understanding of what's happening, but it, it's not doing anything. It doesn't have the power to do anything. And when you look at countries, Western countries like America, Australia, a lot of Europe, they're just supporting what Israel's doing. So you you went away pretty pretty confronted, and uh, uh, like I said, I guess uh, you can only bear bear witness to this. But uh, I suppose now you would feel that um, the more people talk about this, and the more people push back, the better. Yes, I think that's pretty much all they are asking for now, and can hope for now. And look, I have to say that I did meet quite a number of Israelis that are just as concerned as I am and they are doing what they can within the country to, to try and support the Israelis and just the um, Palestinians and to try and get, take action. So I think more and more Israelis are starting to understand and wake up to what's actually happening there. So they've got a very strong Zionist uh, government and this is uh, also affecting them, of course. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Thanks for talking to and, us today. Uh, thanks very much, Annie. moment won't last As everything comes to an end And then it happens You reach your lowest point And then it changes You rise back up again See your suffering Badly hidden by your charm You have everyone laughing in the crowd You have everyone praying you will slow down You are dead 
Solidarity Breakfast with Annie on 3CR and we're returning to Melbourne uh, with our next uh, story which is of course the big rally that was held last night uh, in support of Julian Assange. Uh, His uh, hearing in uh, London on uh, Monday will be starting uh, to look at his potential extradition to uh, America and uh, uh, we've got, uh, luckily enough, we've got uh, Joan Coxedge's speech on that uh, at that rally. Well, thank you very much for inviting me here today and congratulations to all of you for coming and I hope you can hear me against the noise in the background. But we're here today to show our support for Julian Assange. He's a brave Australian who's fighting for his life. Most of you know the facts, or some of the facts, that Julian Assange spent seven years holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, ostensibly for a bail violation, before being thrown out by British police after the election of Ecuador's new brutal pro-torture President Moreno, who decided to revoke his right of asylum. Since, Since last April, he's been incarcerated in London's notorious Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison, where he spent 23 hours a day stuck in a cell in total isolation, heavily sedated, and denied medical treatment with no access to a laptop, a lawyer or his family. 
after a lot of pressure, he's been moved to a different part of the prison but is still confined for more than 20 hours a day. On the 24th of February, that's only a couple of days away, uh, London's Woolwich Crown Court will decide whether he will be extradited to the United States to face 18 charges under the Espionage Act, each carrying a sentence of 10 years, a hearing that will last for about a week and then resume on the 18th of May for another three weeks. If his court appearance last November is anything to go by, he certainly won't get a fair hearing. He appeared before a dodgy magistrate with links to the British military establishment who didn't even pretend to listen to what was being said. The charges were specific and had nothing to do with Sweden, nothing to do with sex and nothing to do with the 2016 US federal election but everything to do with publishing the Iraqi war logs the Afghani war logs and US State Department cables because they exposed massive war crimes and corruption by the US military and intelligence establishment. There was also a video showing an American helicopter crew laughing and joking as they gunned down civilians, including children, and two Reuters journalists in a Baghdad street. And there was an exposure of Hillary Clinton's corruption and mendacity. She got millions of dollars from Saudi Arabia and Qatar, two major funders of the Islamic State, and a load of money from Goldman Sachs that could only be described as a bribe. She was also shown to be the principal architect of the war in Libya a war she thought would help her win an election, but which destroyed a nation. Everyone in that court saw one of the greatest journalists and most important dissidents of our time being tortured to death before our eyes, said former British ambassador Craig Murray. There were five representatives of the US government present in that court seated at desks behind James Lewis QC and other prosecution lawyers. Lewis actually admitted that he was taking instructions from behind, meaning a British judge in a British court was being dictated to by the US Embassy. And it has now been disclosed on primetime German TV that while Julian was in the embassy, a Spanish private security firm made audio and video recordings of all his meetings with lawyers, photographed the passports of all his visitors and took their phones, all of which was passed on to the CIA, claims being investigated by Spain's High Court. The program also showed how allegations against Julian were made up and manipulated to keep him in jail. The particularly, the particularly nasty allegation that led many to believe Assange was a rapist were also shown to be fraudulent. 
the documents were invented in the same way that George W. Bush, Tony Blair and John Howard lied that Saddam had weapons of mass, mass destruction to justify the Iraq war when more than a million people died. Once Julian was arrested by British police, the sexual assault case was dropped. The publication of classified documents is not yet a crime in the United States. If Assange is extradited and convicted, it will become one. Bearing in mind that he is not an American citizen, he is an Australian. And WikiLeaks is not a US-based publication. His extradition would mean the end of journalistic investigations into the inner workings of power and it would cement into place a terrifying global corporate tyranny under which borders, nationality and law mean nothing. Once such a legal precedent is set, any publication that publishes classified material from the New York Times to the Melbourne Age or to an alternative website will be prosecuted and silenced, a fact that the mainstream media appear incapable of understanding, even though Australian Federal Police raided the homes and offices of the ABC and the commercial newspaper after a series of reports called the Afghan Files, based on leaked defence documents. And this week, a federal court judge has ruled the raids were valid and the broadcaster must pay the legal costs. You, you would think, wouldn't you, that there would be public outrage against this official support for intimidation of the press. Nothing. Just silence. Mostly silence. Not completely, because you're here today. But to, to a shame... WikiLeaks has done more than any other news organisation to expose the abuse of power and crimes of the American empire. If our journalists reckoned these war logs and all the other disclosures should have remained hidden, then they have lost the right to be given the title of journalist. But a multitude of voices are now speaking out. In the Commons, Jeremy Corbyn urged Boris Johnson to back the Council of Europe who called for Julian's immediate release. Corbyn's decisive action came shortly after Julian was nominated for the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize. How many of you read about that? Along with Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden. The nomination letter stated that the three needed to be recognised for their, quote, unprecedented contributions to the pursuit of peace and their immense personal sacrifices. Assange has also won the 2020 Gary Webb Freedom of the Press Award. As Julian said, Populations don't like wars. They have to be lied into them. Throughout all of Julian's protracted ordeal, not one 
word of support from the Australian government or the Labour Party. The lack of support for an Australian citizen from the government and Labour is a national disgrace. By every elected politician in all three levels of government, except for a weird pair, Andrew Wilkie and George Christensen, and our federal member who spoke here earlier today, and the handful in the committee, and I uh, congratulate them. But we Australians need to stand up, to speak out, to protest in the clearest and most visible way, to demand that Julian Assange should be immediately released from prison and brought home and to tell the United States to bugger off. This, this is a critical moment for press freedom and our right to know. If there is any sense of justice left, the travesty that is the case against Australian citizen Julian Assange must be thrown out and he must be brought home as a free man. If he isn't, then we're heading into darker times where the US empire will continue on its destructive path unchecked. And freedom of speech will be a thing of the past. So if you have to, don't be silent. Shout from the rooftops and shout as loud as you can. Thank you. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. Today, we conclude our recent series of chats with Josh Cullinan of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union discussing federal government policies on industrial relations, and I'll also update you on recent developments. Controversies around John Setka, the secretary of the CFMMEU, led to the coalition reintroducing a moribund Turnbull initiative, the Ensuring Integrity Bill. The sharp end of that bill, a power for the government to reach into trade union hierarchies and dismiss union officials accused of misconduct, and even to wind up errant unions entirely, caused difficulties in the Senate. At the time of the following interview with Josh Cullinan of RAFWU, the fate of the bill was still on a knife edge. Two federal court decisions were also causing controversy. In late 2018, in Workpack versus Skeen, the definition of a casual employee was revised by the court. Two class actions this year and a separate federal court decision pending will try to resolve the issue, hopefully restricting the ability of employers to casualise workforces in order to strip worker benefits. 
Another federal court decision in August of 2019 in Mondelez v AMWU found that sick leave had to be paid so as to reflect shift work and not just at an ordinary hour's rate. This has been appealed by both the employer and the minister to the High Court. We await judgment. In the days before the following interview, Christian Porter flagged a legislative reform on Greenfield's workplace agreements that would extend the agreements period to cover the entire life of the project. Greenfield's agreements are workplace agreements drawn up between employers and unions prior to anyone being employed at the workplace, so that future workers have no input. They can apply to new businesses as well as new projects undertaken by existing businesses. As this was fresh news at the time of the interview, Josh brought it up early on before going on to discuss the Ensuring Integrity Bill, the lessons from 2005's Work Choices reforms and the government's rather timid gestures towards meeting wage theft with custodial sentences. We've heard the Industrial Relations Minister, Porter, describe the SDA as the gold standard in unionism after having met with and spoken with McDonald's head office and draw the distinction with the CFMEU and the way it engages and represents its members. So no doubt the approach of the federal government, Josh Frydenberg and the others, is to diminish the workplace rights of workers to be able to take direct action. And a good example is the Greenfields arrangements. Let's be absolutely clear. All of that legislation that's being proposed is purely to lock out workers from being able to take industrial action ever on these sites. I'm not aware of this legislation, is it, to draw up agreements in Greenfields situations? Initially with some unions, but with no employees, and then to have those Greenfields agreements live for the lifetime of the project. You know, I look at Jack Butler, is a company owned by Woolworths that runs their online stores. It started up in 2017. A secret deal was done with the SDA, a Greenfields deal. It was so secret that when we sought a copy of the file from the Fair Work Commission, in 24 hours, the Fair Work Commission was able to consult with the employer and issue a suppression order so that the wage rates are suppressed and can't be shared with anyone. But this Greenfields deal now covers two or three sites with 400 workers working in each. It could be conceivable under this new legislation that those workers would never have an expiry date to their agreements, would never be able to return minimum conditions, would never be able to negotiate for better conditions, never take industrial action. That's where, you know, I think that the legislation in Australia and the precedent has been going for the last 15 years. More and more industries and workplaces are unable to take industrial action. And the last part of that pie is really the private sector. So we've got all of the emergency services, lots of the public services, the universities, lots of sectors which are now no longer able to take sustained significant industrial action because it'll be stopped by the Fair Work Commission. But the last hurrah now is really the private sector. And you think about construction, every project's a Greenfields project. And no doubt there will be a ready and willing union, and it's not the CFMMEU, to do deals which lock in inferior conditions. And that Jack Butler site, they slashed the hourly rate compared to supermarkets, not online supermarkets, doing exactly the same work by $1.50 an hour. That's what that new agreement did. So so we're concerned about that. We're concerned about the Ensuring Integrity Bill and the way that it targets unions that are militant. We're concerned about all the approaches because it's all being driven by an agenda, which is the IPA's agenda and the BCA's agenda. And that is not in any way, shape or form of interest to working people. 
so yeah, Josh Feinberg and his industrial relations review and Porter's industrial relations review, we expect will be directed more at facilitating the kind of exploitation that we fight against every day and celebrating the kind of gold standard unionism that they celebrate, which is the SDA. We're not at all interested in any of that and we're hopeful that the crossbench calls it out for what it is. One wonders whether they learnt their lesson from 2005? Yeah, 2005 to seven. It's a different kind of arrogance, I think, at the moment compared to what we experienced in 2005 and six when AWAs were introduced and Work Choices was introduced and the fight of our lives to get rid of it. But that said, they would have seen that they've seen off this amorphous blob of a campaign called Change the Rules and they would probably have a certain level of arrogance about how they can start changes in these sectors. Probably we're coming to the end of two or three years of industrial shock in our sectors, in retail and fast food, where these employers have been called out for underpaying workers by a billion dollars a year. They haven't had to do anything. No one's gone to jail. Like No one's been properly investigated in that, but we've gone about the work of getting the wages returned and they've had to do that. And so once they settle from that in the next year or so, we expect that they will be heavily engaged in the fight to undermine workers' rights in even these sectors. There was a bit of noise a while back about changing the law so that people who were guilty of incorrectly paying other people could go to jail. Has anything come of that? No, they're still preparing, I think, the legislation around wage theft. But It's akin to the labour hire licensing legislation where there's progressive proposals from anywhere in Australia. They try and claim ownership and nationalise to avoid strong laws coming into effect. The talk is that it would be legislation that would potentially jail the most egregious forms of wage theft. But the more uh, egregious forms, you know, found by a court five times, well, yes, that'd be great. Who's going to be able to sue an employer five times to get them into that scenario? We've seen the franchisee laws improved with the introduction of the Protecting Vulnerable Workers Bill, but that still requires, to be able to get a franchise or on the hook, it still requires high tests, it still requires litigation in the courts. We know the Fair Work Ombudsman won't take on any of those cases uh, because they're too hard, and it's left to workers to try and sue these employers. So the wage theft legislation that's being proposed will be too weak. We already know that. Hopefully the unions can continue to run that campaign and start introducing strong state-based legislation to set a better frame. Well, a month after that interview, the Ensuring Integrity Bill ran aground in the Senate on the twin rocks of Jackie Lambie and Pauline Hanson. However, Centre Alliance Senator Rex Patrick, who described the bill as a sledgehammer to crack a walnut, that walnut being John Setka, turned and voted for the bill. Days later, the bill was modified and reintroduced under a new name in the House of Reps. It is still pending in the Senate and it is unclear whether the government will actively pursue it and whether it will pass, but it only needs one senator to shift their vote to get it up. Once again, we thank Josh Cullinan for his time and expertise.
You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we uh, thank Duncan Graham for his report. Coming up next is an interview I did with uh, Maya Newell. She's made this film called In My Blood It Runs. It's an absolutely uh, riveting film and it it follows the uh, uh, life of a a young boy, an Indigenous boy who lives in uh, Alice Springs or did live in Alice Springs it was uh, made uh, around the uh, time of the allegations around uh, abuse and torture of Indigenous children in uh, the uh, Dondale, Northern Territory Dondale Detention Centre. And uh, it uh, has some fascinating elements in it, uh, quite besides uh, the uh, amazing uh, point of view of this 10-year-old boy. But uh, facts that uh, in that detention regime in the Northern Territory, the uh, uh, clientele, 100% Indigenous. Uh, Nobody else is naughty in the Northern Territory. Uh, Flabbergasting. Anyway, this is my chat with uh, Maya and uh, her film is on at the moment. Thanks for coming in and talking to Maya uh, Newell. Uh, your new film, In My Blood It Runs, I'll have to say, is one of the most uh, compelling films I've ever seen. Uh, it's actually set in the uh, in Alice Springs to begin with. Can you tell me a little bit about how this came about, this film? And, you know, as you talk, you'll be describing to people what's what it's about. Yeah, sure. So when the film actually, we, we started filming maybe two or three three years ago, but the foundation in which the story began is a 10-year story. So I was invited, had the privilege to be invited by Aranda Elders when I was 21 to make films alongside them about the empowering work that they're doing to educate their children in language and culture and identity. And that was with this organisation called Akilira, which is a healing place where Nangaras, so traditional healers, can go and be supported in an intergenerational way to learn about their powers, Uh, Ah, which was very amazing. And over those years, I suppose, built the trust and went on this learning journey that enabled the intimacy that you see on screen of In My Blood It Runs. And I think it's worth saying, so the film follows a young Aranda Garua boy as he's navigating an education system not built for him, welfare system out to remove him from his family, increasing scrutiny from the police but really the story is about the love and care of his family and the fight that they are on tire you know every day tirelessly to support him and ground him in his aboriginal education which is so often um, missing from our western education systems Uh, we went on this very long journey it's shot in this observational way so you walk alongside him and really see the world through his um, his lens, which, you know, for most Australians, we don't often get that opportunity to really understand what it might be like to experience the world from a 10-year-old, you know, First Nations child perspective. Uh, I tell you, the um, intimacy that you achieved, I was actually going to ask you, how did you do it? I mean, you, you're the person who made the fantastic film Gabby Baby that uh, it took the view the, of the kids who were involved in a family of uh, single parent 
uh, you know, I'm not single parent, so same, same sex, sex parents. Yeah, same sex parents. Um, so you'd already obviously decided that this was a good approach. Yeah, and I actually think it's great that you raise Gaby Baby. So that was, yeah, shot through the perspective of four um, children who are being raised by queer families. And that is my story. I've got two lesbian mothers. So in the making of that story, I understood how important it is for a community who are constantly being degraded by the public about, you know, that we're not good enough, that our families are not good enough. And I knew how important it was to represent our stories right. So they're stealing your story, really? Yeah, I mean, you know, mainstream Australia during the marriage equality debate was in a constant state of telling us that, you know, our, our families were not good enough, our parents were not, should not be allowed to be married. So in approaching In My Blood It Runs, I wanted to um, create, we needed to ensure that that agency and the politics of representation, that we, uh, that we applied a very specific um, structure and model of consultation around this film to ensure that people's identities in the film, people's representation was correct, was protected. And First Nations people have had their stories um, misappropriated for centuries in this country. So what we did is we um, sat around and we created this structure where the families in the film are the core uh, partners. They always had control over the way that they were being represented. We had a board of advisors made up of Duan's grandmothers, great-grandmothers, elders, and everyone participated in this process where from early messaging stage all the way through to assembly, rough cut, fine cut, we held multi-day workshops where families were engaged in the process of filmmaking and allowed to direct how they felt the film uh, we should manage the filmmaking process. And I think it is, just to bring it back to the intimacy that you see on screen, I really do put it down to that model of consultation, which meant that families always knew that at the end of the day, it was up to them whether you know a scene appeared in the film or not. And I think that we were able to film up close and personal uh, because of that agency and control being, being um, with the family. That's amazing. I, I don't know if this is an oblique question, but does did the uh, First Nations people, the Aranda and uh, Guru people, the fact that they are oral history people in a sense, as well as visual, did that have an effect on how they uh, took the emotional uh, strength of the filming? Um, I mean, yeah, obviously people are incredible storytellers and it doesn't, I don't think it changed what happened in Duan's life. Like we were all very shocked in the end at the trajectory uh, in which he was walking. But what it meant is that we could film this story in a culturally responsive way. And so when hard things happened, we just sat down with the families and we said, what shall we do? What shall we do? Should we include this bit? How, If we do, how should we include it? So you'll see that even though the film doesn't shy away from... Um, challenges that Duane experiences in school, in welfare, in juvenile justice, it reveals those stories in a strength-based way. So the uh, stuff to do with the uh, detention uh, system in the Northern Territory, as it were, 
uh, tell was running along at the same time, really, isn't it? it really... Yeah, we actually started filming when the allegations came out on Four Corners about children being tortured in uh, juvenile detention up at Dondale, like um, Dylan Voller. And I was with Duan as he was watching the TV of that news report. And I think as a country, we remember that moment. We remember the shock and horror that in a first world country like Australia, we would be treating our First Nations children in this way, under our care. But when you sit with Duan and watch the TV and see that from his perspective, here is a child who knows many people who are locked up, who oh, his is his auntie, as, as seen in, in the film. And that has very different resonance. Uh, as he says, why he reflects on that moment in the film and he says, why are they treating them the same way they treat their enemies? Yeah. Um, where did you get that footage? Because, you know, that carefully incised footage of enormous men and tiny boys. It's just so um, revealing. And it wasn't a lot. It was just enough. Yeah, enough to trigger the memory of Australians too, who did watch that footage. Many of us did. Um, I think that, you know, at the time we were filming 100% of children in the Northern Territory juvenile justice system were Aboriginal and I'm pretty sure that statistic has not changed much. Uh, The film actually contours the timeline of the Royal Commission uh, and there has not been so much done even now, um, including some of the uh, demands by that commission to raise the age of criminal responsibility. So we're one of the only Western countries in the world that think it's okay to lock up a 10-year-old child and to support that family. And, you know, that's a child who is asking for help uh, and we, our punitive system puts them in jail. That's our way of helping them. The international human rights standard is, is 14 and our country is in the process of deliberating whether we should raise the age. Um, so, yeah, that's one of the issues that the film is taking to Australia and trying to... Um, influence that decision being made by our leaders right now. In fact, on our website, you can write to your Attorney General directly through a very simple tool and tell them that you think 10-year-old is, is, should be you know, in classrooms, in playgrounds with their families, not in jail. Well, one of the key elements in your film is that uh, uh, it puts uh, side by side the dissonance between the establish the uh, mainstream white establishment Anglo establishment versus the uh, experience of an Aboriginal boy who is a born Aboriginal First Nations activist. There's no two ways about <laughs> it, and uh, uh, he's proud of himself and he's perplexed. And he is also not a stupid person. Yeah. You know, when I met Duan, I met him on a Nagra camp. So that's a traditional healer in Arunda language. And he's this witty, intelligent, hilarious, cheeky, you know, exuberant child, which is, and he's really, you know, your leader through this story. He holds your hand. But I just thought, He's just at this beautiful age where he's on the cusp of um, becoming cognizant of the more complex issues that are facing our country. And he he has this sort of poetic wisdom in the way he articulates that, that really just cuts through your soul as a listener and as a watcher. And I thought, you know, what a beautiful conduit for the Australian public to be able to sit with him and learn some really simple truths in many ways, but ones that 
us as adults and as a society seem to have forgotten. But also uh, he's been characterised by the uh, mainstream as a, a bad person, as a waster, as a nobody person. It's quite clear that's what that was the trajectory that they were intending for him. Yeah, and I think that the film shows that. Like here is a very intelligent young child who is actually not an exception. You know, every First Nations child and every child is incredibly, you know, clever and exceptional in their own way. Uh, yet he feels like a failure at school and he's only measured by certain Western standards. And so, you know, he said to me, um, his great-grandmother actually said to me early on in this process, she said, Maya, we're always trying to get uh, – they're always telling us to make our children ready for school, but when are we going to make schools ready for our children? And I think that that really cuts to the heart of this film. It says, you know, we expect these children to be assimilated into our systems, but when are we going to change our systems to incorporate respect – teach their identities that makes them feel validated and allow space for them to succeed and when the when is the mainstream going to grow up so you, <laughs> you you're on a, you're on a journey you've uh, taken this film to the UN for example and Duane actually got to stand up yeah I mean it was very amazing we he actually became the youngest person ever to address the human rights council at the United Nations and he oh, I mean he it was so he amazing. It. He nailed it. But also there's one memory that I'd like to share. I was I was sitting there and we're in the massive room. He's about to speak. His father was sitting next to him, Jim Jim. They were wearing matching shirts, which was really cute. And every, all eyes were sort of on him and I just hear this like, boom, boom. And Duane had taken out a toy car from his pocket and was driving it up and down the microphone. And... While that was very cute, it was also heartbreaking because here is a child who is so clearly a child who is asking for the right to be a child in Australia. He's asking the government to stop locking up kids like him and he was so clearly a child in that moment. I, I couldn't believe the last part of that film where he stands up, he's hanging off the car and it's getting into silhouette because uh, and it's so quintessentially being in uh, the wild of Australia really and he turns back and he's saying I just want to be an Aboriginal I just want to be an Aboriginal and I thought that is such a, a powerful statement because what's being said to Aboriginal people is you're not allowed you're not allowed to be and it's not even something that people should be aspiring to Absolutely. And I think, yeah, he says, I, I just want to live a normal life. I just want to be me. Yeah. And what I mean by me is to be an Aboriginal. And yeah, I think we have um, a war against First Nations people's identities and we have since colonisation. And it's about time that we listened to the grandmothers, listened to children like Duan who were saying, hey, why can't I learn my language and my culture in my education like every other child in this country? I was really floored by that sequence where the teacher is teaching them about Captain Cook. I thought, what, hasn't there been a change? Don't they realise that something's different here, you know? Yeah, so there is a really significant scene in the book, in, in the film, where uh, the children are being taught history, which promotes this idea that 
Captain Cook is this hero that came and founded and discovered Australia. The book was printed in 1951, uh, which um, obviously has a very particular worldview, but it actually connects with the narrative that we still hear on Australia Day and that a lot of our leaders still use is that, you know, Australia began uh, when Captain Cook arrived. And that, at the very best, you know, erases the histories of, of so many people who were here beforehand. And Duan, in that moment, when you sit with him in the classroom and you see that lesson from his perspective, you feel what that might be like to be a young person who, whose whole history is eradicated um, every day in the systems that are meant to uplift them. Which is interesting because I guess uh, the disrespect that he's shown, he, he also feels a great deal of disrespect for the uh, system that he's struggling against or struggling within. Yeah, and I think, you know, in the film we're trying to not point the finger at any, no. you know, individual teacher or any individual system in in a way. It's sort of just sitting with Duan and seeing how all of these systems are interconnected and are telling him the same message over and over again is that, you know, you don't fit here, you're not good enough. And how how would you react if you were a young person, you know? I know I'd be pretty angry. Yeah, I would be too, and uh, he's just at the right age for it too. And it's interesting, I've recently done an interview with some people who have made a film called When the River Runs Dry, which is about the the killing of the uh, Murray-Darling River for personal gain, effectively. Uh, and um, they were saying that some people looked at the film and said that there's no bad guy, and... Uh, that whole concept of a film uh, having to uh, that is dealing with enormously complex issues uh, being reduced to a goodie and a baddie. Uh, in fact, your film is the same. A goodie and a baddie is a ludicrous notion when you're dealing and grappling with the enormity of uh, First Nations connection to uh, the colonial project. Absolutely. And I think that um, in if you if we take a step out and look at the systems issues and the issues and the policy um, throughout time that have brought us to where we are, um, it's also a reflection on every person in this country who is a settler on this land. And um, we should all be asking the question of how can we use our privilege to support the first people of this country? Uh, you've uh, taken the film first to uh, the people that you you were making the film for. Yeah. Tell us about the journey of the film. Um, so, I mean, we've done so many things just from the inception. We took the whole family over to Hot Docs for our world premiere last year. In Canada. Uh, which is in Canada, which is a really huge documentary film festival. But just this week, we're releasing in cinemas across the country on the 20th of February. And we started our publicity our big opening launch at Hidden Valley Town Camp where the film began and it was a beautiful night where there was a red carpet there were heaps of flies and there was the Hidden Valley community who embraced the film and were very proud for the film to be uh, opened on their country beautiful speeches from all our advisors Carol Dewan's grandmother um, sang with all of the and danced with all of the young women and we're starting that tour and the ARC uh, will lead us to Federal Parliament House on the 25th of February where we will be presenting Duan's story to um, the Australian 
you know, politicians and also, you know, Duan and a new network of First Nations educators from all around the country are coming to present their roadmap for to establish a First Nations-led education system. Uh, that initiative is being supported by an organisation called Children's Ground. So if you haven't heard of them, they're amazing leading education reform in this country. And, you know, I think it's exciting because sometimes at the end of watching a documentary you can feel a bit upset or downtrodden by the state of affairs in this country around how we deal with our First Nations people and families. But we want this to have a hopeful ending. You know, Duane's grandmothers are actually leading the change that they want to see. They're saying we want control of our uh, grandchildren's education systems and they know how to do it. In fact, they've been educating their children for you know, thousands and thousands of years and we just need to start recognising those systems and listening to them in terms of how we can formalise that into our education system. If people uh, listening, A, would like to see the film, it's opening in cinemas on the 20th of February and you can see all the screenings at inmybloodatruns.com slash screenings. If you can't see a screening there in your local town, you can host one. Uh, in Melbourne, it's opening at Cinema Nova. And um, also, if you're interested in learning about the film's impact campaign, how you can support First Nations-led education or raising the age of criminal responsibility, that's also on our website at inmybloodatruns.com slash action. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when, well, you've caught me enjoying a game of two-up in a lane out the back of the fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like a commission. An illegal game, I suspect, although the coins are being tossed by some of the most respectable people in our society, great celebrity chefs, for instance, the, the great supermarket big supremos, great corporate figures enjoying the game, although when I say I'm enjoying the game, I'm not having a lot of luck. In fact, none. See, I know that in the end it's going to be near enough to 50-50, 50 heads, 50 tails, but thus far there's been several hundred tosses, well, more correctly, 340 tosses. I watched the first and, being astute, then decided to back the other. Now I think it must come up soon, and it must be getting close because it's heads 340, tails nil. So I've copped 339 losses in a row, which I now understand because just a minute ago, this young worker serving coffee and refreshments to the great corporate identities, young worker whom someone suggested is being underpaid, but, uh, but I'm not sure of that because these pillars of society wouldn't be part of cheating a worker over and above the normal cheat bit that's just a part of normal employment. Anyway, young worker just accidentally kicked the coin and as it flipped over, it came up heads yet again. It's heads on one side and heads on the other. There's no tails, two obverse and no converse. The respectable great corporates said how sorry they were. It was inadvertent that they won 340 in a row. Inadvertent. We had no idea there was this error. It comes down to the complicated rules meant to ensure a, a fair game. Incredible complexity. Worst payers, big supremo Rob the Worker Scott spoke for the responsible great corporates. 
incredible complexity? Yes, yes, really complicated clauses like the coin should have heads on one side and tails on the other. I mean, how's a simple business executive supposed to understand what that means? It reminds me a bit of this worker underpayment business. Good business for business, but we'd think that just once, oh so occasionally, they'd misinterpret the complicated complexity and inadvertently overpay somebody. But seriously, they're not all bad. In an exclusive week that was survey, we uncovered as many as five caring employers who seem to be paying their workers the correct rates. So they're only stealing the normal surplus value from those workers. But more good news. Problem solved, because the culprit has been fingered by no less an authority as our old mate, the true blue Aussie industry profits group's Innes Will Pox on the Workers. And any wonder he wants a pox on the workers, because the problem of underpayments is down to, we got it, you got it, the evil unions. It's nothing to do with caring employers. The evil, evil unions. It's the caring employers who are being ripped off, according to Innes. In between backing heads 340 times at the two-up school, Innes told the week that was that poor celebrity chef George Calambaras paying workers had been crucified by the evil unions who, direct quote, no embellishment, hard as it is to believe, actually said, unions have to bear much of the opprobrium for the collapse of Mr Calambaras paying workers' business through their use of an over-emotional term like like wage theft and relentlessly over-inflating and politicising the issue. My goodness, we knew unions were evil, but I don't think too many of us knew just how evil they, they were or are. How over-emotional to describe wage theft as wage theft. How over-emotional to politicise workers being underpaid by millions and millions of dollars. Why, if George could have gone on stealing from his workers, he could have gone on happily running his business empire, practising his own form of over-inflation, over-inflating the ridiculously high prices he charges customers for the privilege of paying the ridiculously high prices he charges. The reassuring revelation of the real cause of wage theft, uh, sorry for the over-emotional language, real cause of uh, wage inadvertencies, was undermined by the response of the Socialist Party caring business class relations spokesperson, Tony Bark Worstan, who attacked Innes's very reasonable explanation with, businesses just need to take compliance with employment law as seriously as they do with tax law. What an idiot! Or doesn't he care about workers not being paid? Surely he knows they already take not paying workers as seriously as they take not paying taxes. So much for him. Still big savings on specials down at the great supermarkets this week. Workers' wages, 50% off. 52 weeks only. Although really, we'd think even Innes might, uh, might think that sometimes it's better to just keep your mouth shut. And speaking of, to business this week in another scathing attack on the government over climate change, if there is such a thing, on behalf of the caring business class Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Anthony Albing Uzi said, direct quote, a business doesn't know what the government's policy is because, frankly, they simply don't have one. Oh, just like you, Anthony.
Frankly, there is no comparison between the policy they don't have and the policy we don't have. Oh, it's always a heavily contested battle, but no, let's give it to him. Anthony, your pot calling the kettle award is on its way. But then I do him a disservice. Just yesterday, Anthony announced the Socialist Party policy, which is to think about developing a Socialist Party policy. Oh, but with the guarantee he'd do something by 2050 or the end of the world, whichever comes first. Although on the pot calling the kettle, no, no, we've given it to him now, but, but US Secretary for World State Mike Pompeo or else comes a close second. Well, the US of itself, as Mike told a security by train killing, train killing intelligence conference in Europe, train killing intelligence, there's a classic oxymoron, which included the filthy rich merchants of death who protect the free world by selling their merchandise to both sides, showing how even handed and caring they are. Anyway, the always cheery, happy, happy Mike told the assembled lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy that evil Russia and evil China were bent on creating empires. Evil, evil empires. Imagine how that would abrade the US of's hatred of empire building and bullying. But the audience must have breathed a sigh of when Mike assured them the US of would use its train killers stationed in almost every country across the globe to protect the world from those bent on empire. What a strong pot calling the kettle contender. And the US OB secretary for train killer offence, Mark to spare bad guys, told the conference we all face a bleak future unless we do all we can to contain evil China. And countries prepared to utilise Chinese technology could expect US OB retaliation, showing just how much the US OB opposes empire building and detests bullies. And Mike and... Uh, Mike said again, direct quote, the West is winning. But he didn't say winning what, and surely the peace love in US wouldn't mean, no, no, no. And showing how true Blue Aussie is doing all we can to obey Mark's containing China order, we cancelled a security visit to Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country because they are using Yahweh, and we went to the US of instead to analyse just how evil Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country is to defy the US of's anti-empire building orders. Unlike True Blue Aussie, because we never, never disobey the US of's orders because we cherish our independence. Last week we reported the re-emergence from a swamp somewhere of Barnacle, promptly forced back into the swamp by other hideous creatures. And speaking of re-emerging from a swamp, this week spare a thought for the Minister for keeping us secure, concentration camps, razor wire and sink the boats, Constable Peter Dupper, thwarted by irresponsible their honours in his attempt to protect us, their responsible honours declaring the indigenous people of this country are not Aliens. This is alien to the, you know, like 237 year history of the, like, you know, uh, country. Pete spoke for all of us, but he, he might have got the date wrong. But encouraging, uh, encouraging news, Pete says the, he will consider legislation to restrict the damage. 
Because if you're like me, listener, I've hardly been able to sleep since the decision. The damage, the damage, the damage, my head keeps spinning. Part of the damage, Pete said, the division creates a new class in True Blue Aussie. Oh, true, true. We may have to acknowledge that genocide hasn't worked. Hence, presumably, Pete's brainwave to declare the terra nullius non-people aliens and throw them all out. Backed up by no less an authority than Lord Rupert of Wapping's usual suspect columnist, who declared the ruling meant apartheid, that one race, the terra nullius non-people, non-aliens, until Pete changes the law, have privileges that the real true blue Aussies don't have. Victimised whites. And as usual, governments losing cases and then heading back to Parliament to fix up the law they just lost proves their respect for and the important social role of the separation of powers. Speaking of, back in the US of Big Supremo Donald Trump or the poor reckons the prosecution of one of his business cronies who leaked WikiLeak information to assist Donald's election among about nine convictions is the greatest miscarriage of justice ever, ever. And he'll almost certainly pardon his cronies' reduced sentence, reflecting Donald's deep respect for the law. The episode originally leading Donald to declare, I love WikiLeaks, best ever, ever. I love WikiLeaks. Oh, good, Donald, so you'll also pardon Julian Assange for exposing US of war crimes. 175 years, worst leak ever, ever. But finally, we know governments respect the law. Ask the workers suffering from wage... Th- oh, so, sorry, 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 Innes. Wage inadvertencies. Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. And on the line, we've got Donald Sutherland. G'day, Don. How are you? Very well, thanks, Annie. And hello to you and all your listeners. Yes, and uh, we're going to talk about women's wages, aren't we? Yes. I think we should talk about women's wages because uh, we're not far away from International Women's Day, which, of course, um, and then shortly after International Women's Day, we have the deadline for uh, submissions from interested persons and organisations to the annual wage review about uh, how much wages uh, should be, uh, how much minimum wages should be increased. And funnily enough, they're intimately connected, aren't they? Because an awful lot of women are actually in the lower echelons of pay. Uh, Yes, that's correct. That's what all the research shows. And, of course, this is very topical because we don't know at this stage what the impact, although we we, we can deduce that the impact of the bushfires brought on by climate change are going to... Uh, d- further decrease wages because it's going to put some people out of work or reduce working hours for others who are in part-time work uh, and uh, and push small business employers into great difficulty in being able to increase wages. So there's going to be a lot of argument that the, uh, when the annual wage review consultations get serious after the, the submissions are lodged on uh, March the 13th, just after International Women's Day. We, we've also, I think, one can barely top, I, can't, I, I certainly couldn't top the way in which Kevin has described what's going on with wage theft. I won't go into that any further, except, of course, there were a number of new announcements about uh, other companies now 
fessing up as being wage thieves. And there's another one this morning, the Spotless Group, um, uh, which uh, has also joined that particular exploitation party. Um, the, uh, so I won't go into any more detail about the wage theft issue. Mind you, mind you, uh, it, it should be noted that an awful lot of these companies are actually multinationals. So, uh, and as it's been pointed out, uh, it is a business model. And uh, also, I've noticed that uh, these same people and no, their their mouthpieces, which is practically the entire mainstream media, are now saying that, uh, oh no, no, we didn't just. Uh, underpay people sometimes because it's so complicated we've been overpaying people i'd like yes. i'd like some evidence of that yes well uh, the there is some evidence being reported today but it's highly dodgy yeah coming from some group that no one's ever heard of called the australian payroll association <laughs> uh that's just one of the excuses that the employers are using and trying to dress it up as evidence to say that wage that nothing should be done to prevent wage theft and they're running other arguments as well they're trying to say so in order to make wage theft is just one aspect of wages suppression and the impact of wages suppression upon women who are working for wages whether in part-time or full-time work is somewhat more severe than it is for men although it impacts on both uh, and so that ought to be our focus today, although there's much more that can be said, just to confirm that the wages suppression policy, which is a deliberate one of this government, as confirmed a couple of months ago by Matthias Cormann, who said it was a design feature of the system, uh, it was intended to do that. Uh, the most, I think the most forceful description of the situation came out from a bloke called Michael Pascoe, who's a journalist for the New, da uh, New Daily. He pointed out that what the latest data show is that is a 2.2% annual pay rise is no pay rise at all. After tax and inflation, it's a big fat 0%. And he goes on to substantiate that statement, and it's an article that's worth, um, worth your listeners uh, Googling Michael Pascoe at the New Daily. So let's focus in a little bit more upon uh, the annual wage review and maybe just a little bit of quick revision. The annual wage review is a requirement of the Fair Work Act, a so-called statutory requirement imposed on the Fair Work Commission. It must be done, as the name implies, every year and the process requires that there be submissions from interested organisations and parties. Now, that means any individual can make a submission, but the, which is interesting from the interesting aspect to that when it comes to the strategy of dealing with low wages, the problem of low wages. So uh, now one of the things that in conducting the review that the Fair Work Commission must take into account is uh, the principle of equal remuneration for work uh, of equal or comparable value. And therefore, that draws attention to specific focus on women's wages and what's happening on that front and what should be done about it. Now, uh, the, 
But Fair Work Commission then goes on and said in its decision last year, pointed out, and this is very important from the point of view of all activists in the union movement, women are disproportionately represented among the low paid and the award reliant. Hence, an increase in minimum wages is likely to promote gender pay equity. In other words, likely to help the closing of the gender pay gap. Now, just to keep going a little bit, what does low paid mean? The Commission itself uses as its benchmark a threshold of two-thirds of median earnings. Now, that's at the moment roughly $1,380 a week. And two-thirds is 920 So anyone on $920 or less, thereabouts, is in that low-paid category. And the current situation is that the national minimum wage at the moment is $189.20 less than that living wage. Wow. Now, that's the current situation. We throw in, by the way, the latest report from ACOS, which says that um, which says that now uh, poverty is increasing. It, it, the, the trend to increase poverty, poverty is continuing. Thirteen percent of the Australian population are now living in poverty, and that's their benchmark for that is uh, uh, four hundred and fifty-seven dollars per week based on 2017-18 figures. Now, that 13% includes 774,000 children. That's their estimate. Now, to go back to the Fair Work Commission's approach, what does award-reliant mean? This is very important from the point of view of women. Award-reliant means those workers who are paid at the exact award rate for their for their particular work. In other words, every worker is, is, is employed under an industrial award, and if they're not covered by an enterprise agreement, they must at least be paid at the award rate for the work they do. That is easy to work out. You just get a copy of the award and you work it out, although it's a problem that most employers successfully avoid. <laughs> the, well, the business model is to do your best to avoid it. However, award reliance does not include those workers who might be paid 50 cents or a dollar or two dollars above that minimum rate that employers might use. Those workers are often, uh, in other words, those workers are not in enterprise agreements, but they are being paid slightly above the award rate. Now, I go into all that revision because that shape all of that shapes how the meaning of the Fair Work Commission's review for women workers. They point out that the best approach to help close the gap, to increase, that is to close the gender wage gap to the benefit of work, women working for wages, is a uniform percentage increase. Because at the higher award classifications, women are more likely to be paid at that minimum award rate. So if it's a percentage increase, that percentage increase, whether it's 3% or 6% or whatever it happens to be, is applied to every single minimum rate in the award, 
and that means that the women who are employed at those higher wage levels, they get the benefit as well as women at the lower wage levels, and overall that helps to close the gap. So that's how the Fair Work Commission approaches it. Uh, the current gap is at around 14%, although there is another measure which says it's higher than that, and it's still at about 15%. The Fair Work Commission looks at both of those. Any increase in minimum wages, this is the conclusion of the Fair Work Commission before we start talking about what the ACTU can do about it. It says any increase in minimum wages particularly increases that might exceed those that are happening in enterprise bargaining. So if overall the increases that are happening in enterprise bargaining, bargaining are 2%, and if the Commission awards higher than that, then that's going to have a beneficial impact on gender pay equity. Uh, and so it's a big deal for women who are working for wages, whether in paid or unpaid work. So what's the, the, AC, what's the ACTU? Um, we're, we're coming up to the end of our time. So what do you think the ACTU is going to be doing? Well, it's hard to know because the ACTU has not yet uh, launched any public discussion, as it has in previous years. It normally starts talking about what its submission is going to be well before the, uh, uh, the deadline date. This year, it is not doing that. Most of its effort has been going into the wages and income situation of uh, workers uh, living in bushfire-affected zones or workers who have been on the front line in fighting the bushfires and also, of course, into the wage theft issue. So they have not yet announced their policy and uh, what their claim is going to be. And neither at this stage has any of the employer organisations. Now, for your listeners, if you want to keep an eye on that situation, all you have to do is go to the Fair Work Commission website and just follow the link to the annual wage review. And there they post all of the submissions as soon as they become available. So we don't know. But the ACQ general objective is to increase... Get the, get the minimum wage up to a living wage. And, that, and they sought to do that last year by seeking an increase of 6% in the minimum wage and all of the minimum rates in each of the awards. And that would have meant a $43.15 increase on the minimum wage. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, we, we really have to stop. Um, but what you're really saying, the takeaway take is that it has to be more than 2%. Well, I think it has to be a lot more than that. And, mm. and there needs to be some form of campaign that puts the pressure on the Fair Work Commission to actually make a decision that is closer to the ACTU claim or accepts the ACTU claim instead of being closer to what the employers are seeking, which is always... Uh, last year, the Commission granted... Essentially, it granted very close to what the employers wanted. Yeah, per per uh, usual. We really have to stop. But um, thank you very much for this analysis. This is a, a lot of food for thought. Thank you. Thank you very much. All the best.
And that was Don, uh, Don Sutherland. Very interesting stuff. Uh, just to remind you that there's going to be a, a rally, Climate Crisis National Day of Action. It's uh, outside uh, the State Library, 2pm 2, 2 today. Uh, the people for Julian Assange are saying they'd like you to wear a yellow ribbon because uh, to uh, bring him home. Uh, we're going to coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and uh, we'll go out with uh, a nice local number. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.